Turn, if you would, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. 25 years ago, uh, we went on the air with an FM station in our area, Heaven 88.7. Hard to believe it's been 25 years, but uh, Pastor Hammett uh, had a part in that. Actually, he was a young man. Uh, I'm sure he remembers that. And he was there uh, helping us. And uh, we flipped the switch on December 1st, uh, 1997. And so a couple of months ago, we marked our, our 25th anniversary. And it's, it's hard to believe it's been that long. And he would probably have been in his early 20s, maybe at that time. But that's, that's where I've, I got to first know him. And, and uh, just now for these past 25 years, followed him from afar. And uh, I just want to say... Uh, the people of Lehigh Valley Baptist Church are blessed. You're, you're blessed with a pastor like that, a pastor like that, and a, and a staff like you've got here, and the preaching that you get here. I'm telling you, that, that Sunday school lesson this morning, you're well fed, and I, I hope you appreciate that. Spiritually, I'm telling you, churches like this are rare. And uh, I, I, could, I could tell you of hundreds of churches right now without a pastor, and God has given you the cream of the crop here. And so I, I, I know you appreciate that, but I thought I'd just remind you of how blessed you really are. And uh, I've heard of uh, Lehigh Valley, of course, for its mission's heart, and uh, I so appreciate how you've supported our missionaries over the years, and, and uh, we've had the privilege of, of supporting yours as well. Very, very good families, and uh, anyway, it's our privilege, and it's my privilege to be here tonight and to have been here this week, and I, uh, I, I have mixed emotions about going home. But anyway, I just want to say I appreciate your faithfulness in being here and the uh, time that we've had together. We've been talking about your motto, uh, let your light so shine. That's a tremendous motto. And we talked here this morning about Christ, of course, being the light of the world. And I'd like to kind of build on that tonight with some other thoughts about following Christ. If, if he is the light and uh, we are to make our light shine, that means we would have to be following him. And we find that expression here in our text, John chapter 1, just three verses, beginning in verse number 35. The Bible says again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, I believe those two disciples were John and Andrew, and I don't have time to get into that, but they were followers of John the Baptist. But here we find the baton handed off, and we find these disciples handing over, handed over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as far as I know, this is the last time John the Baptist and Jesus Christ see each other. That's it. And so it's kind of a, a sad moment, but it's an important moment. And there's, there's two words that uh, we find in verse number 37. It says, and they followed Jesus. I want to talk to you about that for a little bit tonight, following Jesus. Father, we thank you now for the time that we've had here this week, this wonderful church and missions conference and, and their big heart to reach the world. Father, we uh, want now to be of some help and ask now that you'd use your word tonight to undergird uh, what this church already believes. And Father, as they seek to be lights, I pray that you would help them now to see the vital part in following Christ to that end. We pray and ask it all now in his precious name. Amen. Amen. You know, there are things that are events in life that are really life-changing. You know, uh, 36 years ago, 
My family pulled up roots and, and we moved to Fargo, North Dakota. We've, we've been there ever since. And if you uh, have ever moved, that's a life-changing event. If you've ever had your parents die, that's a life-changing event. We've buried all of our parents at this point. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country, as some of your folks have uh, as of late, that's a life-changing event. If you've ever gone through a, a bankruptcy, that's a life-changing event. If you've ever struggled with an addiction, that's life-changing. If you've ever gotten over an addiction, that's life-changing. If you've ever gone through a divorce, that's life-changing. When a child is born, that's life-changing. If you've ever had major surgery, that's life-changing. If you've ever been fired from a job, that is life-changing. And there are so many other things we could talk about, car accidents and so on. Well, we find a couple of men here from Galilee. And they're about to have a life-changing event. Those two men are Andrew and John. And up to this point, everything's been okay. But from this point on, strap on your seatbelt. These men are going for a ride. And we pick it up in verse number 35 again. It says, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak. Notice, and they followed Jesus. I want to focus on those two words, followed Jesus, or especially that word followed. You know, in Matthew chapter 9, we find a gospel here written by a man by the name of Levi. We know him as, as Matthew. We know his story of conversion. He was a tax collector. And uh, we read this in Matthew chapter 9 and in verse 9. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, Matthew's life would never be the same. And honestly, Matthew is a poor prospect by, by human evaluation. He would have been a very unpopular man there. He was a tax collector. And the Jews hated him because he worked for the Romans. He was a traitor. And, and, and tax collectors were barred from the temple. They were not allowed to be on juries and pass uh, testifying or testimony in a case. And so we find out here a very unlikely person forsakes everything to follow Jesus Christ. We could uh, talk about another here in this very chapter. We won't really take the time to look at it. His name's Philip. Maybe we have some Philips here tonight. Philip would follow the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 43. Notice the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. And of course, Philip, he uh, goes forth and he finds Nathaniel. Nathaniel follows the Lord Jesus Christ. The result of these men is the church is about to get launched. We find at this point about four or five men, and they would follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would never be the same. So what is involved in following Jesus? Well, first of all, it involves a transforming salvation. We know at this point, or right around here, that Andrew and John were transformed. They were converted. They, they were born again. They followed Christ first in getting saved. There was a pastor years ago by the name of Stearns, Pastor Stearns. And one Sunday morning, he got up and he preached in his church on, uh, 
on following Christ as we follow his sacrifice. We follow that cross. We follow that blood. And there was a, uh, an austere individual in the audience that uh, took offense with that. And he accosted the pastor afterwards and he said, you know, I don't think you ought to be preaching on the blood and, and, and the cross. That's barbaric. He, he said, you ought to be preaching on Christ the teacher. You ought to be preaching on Christ the example and us following his example. And Pastor Stern said, oh, you, you believe you could follow his example? And, and he said, I believe I could. And he said, well, you know, the Bible says of Christ that he knew no sin. That's where it starts. Could you live without sinning? Of course, the man realized his folly, said, no, I could never live a, a sinless life. And, and the pastor wisely said, friend, you don't need an example. You need a savior. And, and it all starts with a savior, folks, this transforming salvation. If we're going to follow Christ, it starts with being born again. Now, how does that happen? Well, I know I am I'm preaching to the choir for the most part. But we know it's not by works. We know it's not by joining a church. We know it's not by getting baptized. You know, following Christ is not a matter of joining a certain denomination. It's not even a matter of, of believing in God. You know, the devils believe in God. It's not a matter of going to church. You know, I find something ironic in Mark chapter 1. There's a, a church service, if you will, going on in the synagogue, and a demon-possessed guy is in the church service. I mean, you're going to attend church and be possessed. Following Christ is the greatest commitment of a lifetime. There is no greater commitment than this. We find a rich young ruler. We don't know his name, but we know his story, and it's found in the Gospel of Mark in the 10th chapter, and he comes sliding into Christ with a loaded question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ felt him out in so many words, realized he was full of himself, full of pride, full of self-righteousness, and he got to the heart of the problem in Mark chapter 10, 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, Sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. You say, Pastor, does it take giving everything away in order to be saved? No, that'd be a work. He actually was getting to the heart of this man. This man had claimed he loved his neighbor as he did himself. And so Christ says, really? Well, just go sell everything you have and give it to your neighbor then. He called him out. And in the process, found out he wasn't really sincere. He didn't really mean business. And he went away sad. And by the way, I don't find Christ running after him and say, well, well, wait a minute. Let's make it easier. Let, uh, just pray a sinner's prayer. No, he knew he wasn't ready. And he let him go. He wasn't ready to follow Christ. Following Christ means walking a narrow road. And, and on that road, you will often be misunderstood. Now, I got saved on this day 42 years ago, March 5th, 1981. It's my spiritual birthday. And when I got saved that night, uh, there was no misconception. I was not disillusioned about what would happen to me. In our large family, nobody knew anything about being born again. And so I knew what it meant. I even asked the preacher as I was going through the plan of salvation. I said, can I be one of these born-again Christians and remain part of my denomination he didn't give me an answer. He asked me a question, very wise. Amen. He said, after nearly 21 years, where was it taking you? I had my answer. I said, let's go forward with this. 
I got saved. I was told not to talk to the rest of the kids. I was told not to come home for Christmas. I mean, it, it, it wasn't pretty. It really wasn't. It was a narrow road. And it's not going to be a, a popularity contest uh, to be a born-again Christian. This business of following Christ involves repentance. It revolves, involves a change of mind about our sin and, and a holy life and a life that now centers around Christ. You know, I talked a little bit earlier today about our uh, solar system. And we have, of course, that, that huge sun, 93 million miles away. It takes like eight minutes for the light of it to even reach the earth. And we have these eight or nine, whatever they say, planets lately. And uh, we have basically everything in our solar system. But you know that 99% of the mass of the solar system is the sun. And everything else, every planet, every comet, every meteorite rotates around it, hurls around it from its gravitational pull. 99% of the mass of this solar system is the sun. And everything revolves around the sun. Folks, when we get saved, our life ought to revolve around the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is everything. It's a, it's a brand new kind of life. We find a woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. And in, in verse number 11, Christ told her, neither do I condemn thee. She had been caught in adultery, the very act. And Christ shows her mercy and he says, neither do I condemn thee. And we say, well, great, man, just go back out into it again. No, no. He, he added this much. Go and sin no more. It's a new life. Go and sin no more. It's a brand new life. It's a transforming life. Now, there's an urgent call to this life. If you're not saved, it's not something you just wait on. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't prolong it. Don't delay. You know, you cannot be promised another day of life. You may have put your shoes on this morning. An undertaker might take them off before the end of the day. None of us has a promise of another church service and another opportunity. It's urgent. So, friend, do it now. Act now. Don't delay. There's no guarantee of another opportunity. It ought to be the very greatest priority of your life, knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior, this transforming salvation. And then after that, following Jesus. You are now one of his sheep when you get saved. And you know, the funny thing about sheep and a shepherd is a, a shepherd doesn't get behind the sheep with a whip. Yeah, drive them forward. But he actually gets out in front of them and they follow him. And we read this in John chapter 10, 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's those words again. They follow me. It's the nature of a goat to butt heads. It's the nature of a sheep to follow. Are you a sheep? Are you following him? We see it involves, first of all, a transforming salvation. Secondly, it involves a total surrender what were Andrew and John getting into here? I mean, following Christ. Well, it's a high calling. It's a very high calling. It's a total surrender. Now, we have a breed of Christianity today that is, uh, is worldly. It's carnal. It's, it's in vogue. It's posh. It's, it's chic. It's trendy. It's, it's hip. It's cool. 
And I think you know what I'm talking about, the new evangelicalism that so many are embracing today. And they say this is, this is Bible Christianity. No, no, it's, it's lowered the bar so low any lost person could get over it. That's not the total surrender we're talking about. In Matthew chapter 8, the Bible says, A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now, why would Christ say this to this man? Well, Christ knew everything. In his omniscience, he saw into the heart of this man. He saw a man here not really as committed as he, he thought he was, and so he, he just laid it out. Here was a man perhaps mesmerized by the healing this man from Galilee was doing. Here's a man who was, was spellbound by this, this great speaker. And there in his, his law-law state, he says, Oh, I want on the bandwagon, as it were. And Christ says this. He said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have, have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And Jesus didn't. He didn't own a house. He didn't own a bed. He didn't own a pillow. And so basically, he was saying, not so fast, friend. Are you surrendered? Is there a surrender here? You know, before Christ would get to Calvary, that road would get pretty narrow. And uh, it would get pretty ugly. No question about that. And in John chapter 6, Christ preaches a, a tough message. And the people even say, this is a hard saying. And all of a sudden, they begin to scatter. And he begins to drop in the poles and in verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. He became very unpopular, and public opinion was reversed. And all that glitz and all that glamour faded. And those who were disillusioned walked by the wayside, never to follow no more. I read the week before last that somewhere between four and 5,000 preachers quit the ministry every year. Four to 5,000 preachers quit the ministry. You know, when I got called to preach, the fall I got saved, there was no pipe dream. I, 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 uh, I knew what I was getting into. It never involved a big income. In fact, it, it, it would involve living in the church basement. I knew from that point on any dreams of being a businessman were gone. I knew uh, any aspirations of having an eight to five job were gone. I would never get weekends off. I would not retire at 62. I would have been retired by now. All of that went by the wayside. But I would not trade the will of God for anything. It, 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 it's wonderful, but it involves a total surrender, not a half-hearted surrender we read this in Matthew 8, 21. It says, And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer or allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. I find it interesting here that Christ says, uh, That doesn't fly. I want you to still follow me. Now, we would read this and go, Man, how calloused of Christ. How cold of Christ. Here's a guy whose dad died, and, and he won't even let him hold the funeral. No, I, I, I don't believe that. It, it means one of two things here. And, and one would be a tradition that the eldest Jewish son had 
to hang around until dad died and do the funeral and all his, his duty as the eldest son before he could move on. And Christ says, no, follow me. Notice this. And let the dead bury their dead. You say, what's he talking about? That's how lost people are viewed by God, spiritually dead. You know, let the unsaved take care of that stuff. You have a higher calling than that. Let the dead bury their dead. The point here is don't put God on hold. We find somebody here wants to put God on hold. Maybe I'm talking to somebody tonight. Currently, you have God on pause until everything's in place as you want it to be. Folks, following Christ is not an optional thing. It's a mandate. And we read this in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's not an optional thing. You put your hand to the plow. You don't look back and you burn the bridge behind you after you cross over it and you follow him. I was just on the Sea of Galilee here a, a, a few weeks ago. In fact, I noticed some of our church folks are there, uh, have been in the last few days. But uh, there on the Sea of Galilee, something happened. There was a demoniac who was saved on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And in Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 20, I'm sorry, wrong story. I'll get to that one in a second. Here on the Sea of Galilee, we find Peter and John. And in verse 20 of, of, of chapter 4, they straightway left their nets and followed him. Think of what they gave up to follow Christ. Following Christ costs us something. You know, over in Israel, we were also at the Temple Mount. And I thought of the origin of the Temple Mount. How David numbered the people. And that angel was coming in to judge. And David needed a place to offer up a sacrifice. And he needed the threshing floor of Arana. And Arana offered it to him. But I like what David said in 2 Samuel 24. He said, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that, which doth cost me nothing. Notice that principle there. I don't want to give God something that cost me nothing. May that be our heart. May that be our desire. What will it cost us? You know, it's not a shallow game following Christ. And it's going to involve some self-denial. We read in Matthew 16, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You say, well, that's radical. That's Christianity. If any man will come after me or follow Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. It's a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong commitment. It's not a passing thing. You know, when I got saved, there were people who thought I was just going through a little phase, uh, thought I'd get over it in time. It's been 42 years, folks. It's not something I'll ever get over. I'll guarantee you that. On that Thursday night, March 5th, 1981, I was not quite 21 years of age, but I I gave God everything I had. I gave him the keys to my life. I gave him the steering wheel of my life. I've never regretted that. But it involves self-denial. It's not a a giddy, flippant thing. In Luke chapter 9 and in verse 23, Jesus said unto them all, If any man will come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. We follow him daily. Are you following him? I heard a story of a young lady who applied for a, a, a certain university, a large uh, university, and she was filling out the questionnaire and came to a, a question. The question was, are you a leader? And she thought for a moment, she said, I'm not a leader. And I can't be dishonest here. I got to tell the truth. She said, no, I, I am a follower. Well, she thought her dream would go up in smoke. They'd never accept her. She assumed what they were looking for. And about a week later, she got a letter in the mail that she had been accepted. Her application had been accepted. She was accepted into the university. And there was a little footnote at the very bottom of the letter that said, and by the way, we have 1,452 leaders applying to come to school here. We need at least one follower. And she was honest. There's nothing wrong with following, folks, as long as we're following Christ. You know what Paul had to say? He said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So following Christ involves a transforming salvation. It involves a total surrender. Thirdly, it involves tenacious soul winning. We find here that Andrew and John were about to embark on one of the greatest adventures of life. John would probably go find James and say, we found the Messiah. We know Andrew went and found Peter and said, we found the Messiah. That's what soul winning is. In Matthew chapter 4, Christ said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's what it means. These are men who had fished for fish. They were anglers or they were netters. And all of a sudden, that all changed. They were following Christ, and that involved being a fisher of men. Christ was a fisher of men. If we follow Christ, we're going to be fishers of men. You know, we find a, a heartwarming story in John chapter 4. The woman at the well, she came out to that well at an odd time of, a, of the day, the heat of the day, instead of the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. She was out there probably when nobody else was out there. She was probably ashamed of her life. She had been married a number of times. She was living with a guy at the time. And Christ met her there. This was a divine appointment. In fact, in John 4, 4, the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. It wasn't to get a new pair of sandals or a, a robe belt. It was because there was a lost woman there. And he knew that they had this divine appointment on the edge of that well, which, by the way, is still there today. And it's one of the most authentic things you'll see in, in the Holy Land. But they'd pelt the bus with rocks if you go there, so nobody gets to go there these days. But you find that Christ and this woman have an exchange there on the edge of that well. The disciples show up and wonder why he's talking to her. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. They didn't get it. They were more interested in lunch, weren't they? But Christ saw a soul here. And this woman got saved. She went back to her village and said, come see a man. And while she was gone, the disciple was going, Master, eat. And he was looking that same direction as the crowd was coming out and said, lift up your eyes, fellas. The, the fields are white unto harvest. Here they come. He saw something they didn't see. Souls. Do we see souls? You know, we can make much ado about the thousands that Christ preached to and the scores that got saved. But if you really follow the life of Christ, 
He was trying to witness to people one at a time. A woman at the well, a a Nicodemus. In fact, we find that Nicodemus finds Jesus in that that garden. And uh, he comes to him and Jesus graciously and tenderly leads him to himself. You know, Christ went across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, I mentioned a moment ago, for one soul over there, a, a demoniac. And by the way, the Sea of Galilee is my favorite place over in Israel because it's exactly like it was at the time of Christ. It's a, it's a, we call it a sea. It's kind of like a big Minnesota lake. It's about 12 miles by 9 miles. It's, it's shaped like a heart or a pear. And there's mountains everywhere. And, and when, you're on, when you're on it and you look around, it's untouched. It looks just like it did at the time of Christ. And when we were on it here several weeks ago, I, I looked over at the east side of it. And I thought of that region of Decapolis or Gadara where Christ made a special trip across the Sea of Galilee for one man. And that demoniac was gloriously converted and we find afterwards he wanted to go with Jesus, wanted to follow Jesus. Howbeit, Mark 5 says, Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. Go tell others what happened to you. That's why God saves us. And that's why God doesn't rapture us to heaven immediately when we get saved, to go tell others. I mentioned this morning, the, the night I got saved, it was late at night. I sat across the desk from that Baptist preacher who would later be my pastor. He took me through verse after verse after verse. And he noticed kind of an anxiety on my face. I, I was trying to remember where those verses were. I wasn't saved yet myself, but, but I knew so many lost people. And so I was trying to wrap my mind around every verse. And where was that? How did that work? And, and, and finally, he wisely noticed that. And he said, uh, I have this all written on a piece of paper. And, and when we're done tonight, I'll just give you this. And I just immediately settled down. But I was thinking of already of folks who were lost and on the road to hell like I was. Following Christ means being a tenacious soul winner. I think most of us have heard of D.L. Moody, uh, that, that preacher of uh, the latter 1800s in Chicagoland. And Moody was always witnessing to people. I actually have D.L. Moody's autograph. He preached up in our area and he, he signed a check and I have it in my office to this day. But, but Moody was always witnessing to people. One, one night, he was in a seedy area of town. He was, he was down on this wharf and he walked out on this dock and there was this old lamp there. This, this seedy looking character was leaning against it. And Moody said, sir, if you die tonight, do you know where you'd go? And the guy just looked at him and he said, mind your own business. And Mr. Moody looked back and he said, sir, this is my business. And the man looked back to him and he said, are you D.L. Moody? I mean, he was that known in Chicago for his witness. Are we known for our testimony? Are we soul winners? That's a Bible expression. Proverbs 30 verse 11 says, he that winneth souls is wise. Could I challenge the folks at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church during your 2023 missions conference to make this a priority, to be a tenacious witness for Christ? You don't have to win them to Christ to succeed. You just need to witness. Let God do the saving. One plants and other waters, but God gives the increase. And there is a special reward for your witnessing.
We find in Daniel 12, it says, They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. There's a special reward. You won't have to wonder who the soul winners were. They'll be the ones shining throughout eternity. They followed Christ as tenacious soul winners. But we see, fourthly, that following Christ involves triumphant suffering. I don't know if Andrew and John had any idea what they're getting into here, but they would suffer before it was all done. Peter would suffer. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Notice that ye should follow his steps. Following Christ won't be easy. It's rough. And uh, there are a lot of folks who cave in. You know, the day that Paul got saved, we find God saying in advance, predicting what his future would be in Acts 9. Christ said, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Did that come to pass? (laughs) Paul went through the mill. You read his resume. It was awful. It was rough. And finally, it culminates with him in the uh, Mamertine dungeon in Rome. I've been there. It's an awful place. There wasn't a soft bed. You slept on the cobblestone. There wasn't three square meals a day. You ate whatever you could. There wasn't a nice bathroom off someplace to, to, to take in. You just used whatever corner you could. It was a nasty, smelly, awful place full of rats. And Paul writes one of his prison epistles, Philippians. And in chapter 3 and verse 10, he says from that dungeon that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, I'm not saying you're going to land in a dungeon. I don't know how rough it's going to get before Christ comes back, but there will be some inconveniences to follow Christ. It it, it will cost you something. You will have some new enemies, perhaps. You will lose some old friends. Not trying to, not trying to be offensive, not trying to be abrasive, but really, if you follow Christ, there's some folks who aren't going to like it. You know, we read in, in, in Mark 8, Christ says, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what John and Andrew did. When they signed on, it meant following Christ. And that meant leaving behind their fishing nets and leaving behind their lucrative business and leaving behind their boats and their family members and the the career and the money and the relationships and, and the plans and the dreams and the goals. All of that, they put a match to that. They followed Christ. My question would be, what have we left behind to follow Christ? I mean, let's be honest tonight. Are there, are there things that you have lost that you count but dung as Paul did? Or are there people that you've, you've lost, dreams that you've lost, things that, that, that you no longer do and, and, and dream about as you look back? Has there been a cost? You know, salvation is a life-changing event, as I said at the beginning. And in the spring of 81, when I got saved, my life changed forever. In the fall of of, uh, 81, when I I surrendered to preach, my life changed forever. And following Christ might mean some triumphant suffering. But finally, following Christ involves a timely stimulus. I believe that John, I believe that Andrew are glad today as they rejoice in heaven. They followed Christ because in time, there's a wonderful compensation. There's a sweet reward. In Mark 10 and verse 29, Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, 
There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold and in the world to come eternal life. You know, I've heard that this hundredfold would mean folding something over a hundred times. If you can imagine that, that's a great reward. Do you believe that? Do we have the foresight to believe that? And so, are we following Christ? You know, following Christ is all about a commitment out of, out of love for him. And uh, it doesn't end with a prayer of salvation. Let me just say that. It, following Christ is not a one-time event. It's a, it's a lifelong event. Amen. And I mentioned Christ a moment ago. Uh, being blunt as far as what it costs to follow him. In uh, Matthew 16, he said, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And so there is a cost. And it really involves two choices. Are you going to try and hang on to your life? And in the process lose it? Or are you going to give them your life, die to self, and find your life? So how does a Christian follow Christ? That's a good question. How does a Christian follow Christ? First of all, by being Christ-like. Doesn't that make sense? Like Christ. There was a, uh, a train station in Europe someplace years ago. I think it was uh, back in the early 1900s. And commuters and, and uh, those going to their jobs would take the train from place to place in the big city. I forget the city. But one day a train pulled up to the platform and there was a, a little orphan boy on, on the platform there selling his wares. He, he had apples. He had gum. He, he had all kinds of little knickknacks. And in, uh, in haste, somebody got out as soon as the door opened and plowed into that boy and plowed into his cart and scattered everything everywhere and looked back and just took off. And the little boy's little eyes, they, they welled up with tears because he saw this herd of people coming toward him and about to trample all his wares underfoot. And all of a sudden, this, this fella dashes out, runs over to the boy, starts picking up things as fast as he can, saying, help me, boy, let's get all this stuff up. And they got it all gathered, and out of the way, the man turned the cart back up, put the things inside, and then he placed some money in the cup of the boy, and he said, Sonny, i got to run. And as he turned to walk away, the boy said, Sir, be you Jesus? And the man turned around. He was a Christian. He said, No, I, I'm not Jesus but I try to be like him, and I try to do what he would do if you're in my shoes. Are we Christ-like? That's what it means to follow Jesus, to have his character. And we can talk about WWJD all we want, but really, are we doing what Jesus would do? This past week, did you act like Christ? Did you react like Christ? Did I? And this week to come, will we be a little Jesus? Following Jesus means being Christ-like. Secondly, following Jesus means being spirit-filled, filled with the spirit of Christ. And having the fruit of the spirit is laid out in Galatians chapter 5. Can we identify with that? Thirdly, following Christ means more than just being a hearer of truth. It means being a doer of truth. It's one thing to come to church and hear Bible truth. It's another to leave these four walls and go out there and practice that truth and live that truth. Fourthly, following Christ means being prayerful and being worshipful because Christ lived practicing the presence 
of the Heavenly Father. He lived the spirit of prayer. And in that kind of condition, he, he breathed it. That's what it means to be like Christ, to live in the presence of the Lord. Fifthly, following Christ means being humble. He made himself of no reputation, right? He took upon him the form of a servant. And so if we're going to be Christ-like and follow him, we need to be humble. We need to be teachable. Now, there are some hindrances to following Christ. One is making excuses. You know, there's always an excuse not to do something God wants us to do. And, and really, it's just a cop-out. It's just an alibi. It's really just making an excuse. I am I'm thinking of somebody that got saved years ago up in, in our area. And uh, how I encouraged him to live for the Lord afterwards. And he was consumed with passing his electrical test, getting his master's license. He said, when I get that, I'll, 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 I'll be more faithful in church and serve the Lord and get involved. And he never did. He never did. Don't make an excuse. You know, there are people that are still using COVID as an excuse. It's like, come on, folks, let's move on. There comes a time to say, you know what? I'm not going to forsake the assembly myself anymore. I'm going to get involved in the local church. It's kind of like that, that guy who said, let me go bury my father first. And Jesus said, come, follow me. Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Christ didn't mince any words. And so one hindrance would be excuses that we make to follow Christ. In Luke 9, 61 Another said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We find that the Lord didn't take any excuses. There's a third reason we don't follow Christ, and that is, I think, fear. I think it's insecurity. Uh, I, I think it's doubt. I think it's, it's being afraid of what he might ask us to do. I'm, I'm thinking of somebody right now that was scared spitless that if he surrendered to God, God would call him to be a missionary to Africa. Look, uh, there's no safer place than the center of God's will. Whatever God wants us to do. And maybe there's somebody here, you're, you're, you're following at a distance because you're afraid of what God might call you to do. Well, there's another reason Christians don't follow God, and that is because they get distracted. You know, I mentioned the Sea of Galilee a moment ago. After Christ rose from the dead, we find the backslidden disciples out there fishing once again. Christ shows up on the shore, and he says, come and dine. And Peter recognizes it's the Lord, and Peter comes in, and this discourse follows, and Christ puts the feet of Peter to the fire, and he says, Peter, three times, do you love me? And Peter couldn't say, I do. He's flushed with embarrassment and decides to change the subject. And he looks over at John and he says, what about him? And aren't we like that? What about John? Let's get the, the light, the lamp, the heat lamp off of me. And I like what Christ said. Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. We find that when we are distracted, Christ says, look, follow me. Now, there's other things that keep us from following the Lord the way we ought to, and we could talk about them. But for lack of time, 
we'll just name them. Complacency, laziness, compromise. And uh, I've seen a lot of that over the years. Now, let's just pause as we close. And let's consider these hindrances. And let's ask God for help. I mean, we all need that. We all need, we all need grace. You know, Peter got off track. Uh, we know the story of that. Peter was always boastful and prideful and the first in line. And, and when it came crunch time, he, he shriveled up. And in Luke 22 and in verse 54, the Bible says, Then took they Christ and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. He went on to deny the Son of God. Of course, we know that Christ restored him. We know that he finished strong. Now, what about us? What about us? You know, there are 7,500 promises in the Bible, best I can read. And uh, we can take every one of them to the bank. God keeps his promises. And as we've looked at promises tonight involved in following Christ, I just want to show you one more. John 12, 26 Jesus says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. That is a promise from God. Follow him, serve him, and God will honor us. Now, back here to our text in John chapter 1, verse 37 says, And the two disciples, Andrew and John, heard him, Christ, Speak, and they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. Folks, you and I live at a, a, a unique time in human history, the last days, the end times of the last days. And if ever there's a time that we need to let our light shine, it's now. But that's going to involve following Jesus. God help us to follow our Savior.